با این نسل نمیتونید در بیفتید این نسل یه نسل شیک یه نسل تیز یه نسل تازه نمیرخصه با سازی با ساز ما نمیسازه نسلی که جواب سلام فرماندتم نداده به شما بی اراده میگم به اونا نسل کامل Welcome to the Lean from New Lines Magazine I'm Danny Postel, the magazine's politics editor and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events and personalities from around the world This month, September, marks the one-year anniversary of the woman-life-freedom protests that have swept across Iran, rocking the Islamic Republic to its foundations in response to the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman from Iran's minority Kurdish community, after being arrested by the morality police for wearing her hijab improperly. Amini's death caused by severe beating in police custody, struck a deep chord in Iran. Protests erupted in over a hundred cities throughout the country, leading to the largest uprising in the country since the 1979 revolution. Amini's Persian first name was Masa, but it was perhaps poetic that her Kurdish first name, Gina, is the Kurdish word for life, since the slogan of the protest movement woman, life, freedom, itself comes from the Kurdish women's movement, Jin, Jian, Azadi in Kurdish, which was then adopted in Persian as Zan, Zendegi, Azadi. Iran's security forces have killed hundreds of protesters over the last year and are ramping up their repression with the one-year anniversary of the uprising approaching, arresting at least 22 activists in less than a month, the majority of them women. Authorities have also targeted family members of protesters who've been killed by state security forces. Between August 11th and August 18th, 21 family members of victims of the Islamic Republic's repression, including those who were executed in connection with the protests, were either summoned to court or detained in Iran. Hadi Ghaemi, executive director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran, explains, Quote, Iranian authorities are rounding up activists around the country, especially women, to deliver a message of fear to the populace ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Woman Life Freedom protest movement. Stand up again and we'll crush you, unquote. One of the most striking features of the Woman Life Freedom movement is the music, art, and poetry that have been inspired by it and have in turn inspired it. A new anthology titled Woman Life Freedom, Voices and Art from the Women's Protests in Iran, published in September of 2023, marshals much of this material. That volume's editor, Malu Halassan, is one of our two guests today. Malu is literary editor of the Middle East arts magazine, The Markaz Review. She has edited or co-edited multiple other anthologies, including the 2014 volume, Syria Speaks, Art and Culture from the Frontline. Malu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Our other guest, Nahid Siamdust, is the author of Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran, published in 2017. She is assistant professor in Middle East and Media Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And she hosts the podcast, Woman, Life, Freedom, which launched in February of this year. Nahid, welcome to The Lead. 
Thanks so much for having me, Danny. So I'd like to talk to both of you about the track that we opened with, Shalag, meaning whip, uh, which is a collaboration between two dissident rappers, Tumaj Salehi and Justina. Tumaj was arrested last October for his outspoken support of the woman life freedom protests. And after 252 days of solitary confinement, he was sentenced to six years and three months in prison. Justina was arrested by the Revolutionary Guards for flouting the regime's ban on solo female singers and has now fled Iran for Sweden, where she lives in exile. Tell us a little bit about this track, what it says, and about the artists who created it together. Why don't we start with you, Nahid? Sure. Shalok is a collaboration, as you said, between Tumaj and Justina, and it's a really groundbreaking track because it reflected in many ways the global nature of this uprising as much as it was an uprising that was happening within Iran. It very quickly solidified solidarities across the globe, especially among Iranian diasporic communities. And Justina, who's recently emigrated to Sweden about a, a couple of years ago, and Tumaj, who started this radical track of hip hop production that really was unprecedented prior to his Surah Mush, which came out a couple of years ago, their forthrightness in their diction and the explicit nature of their rhymes really coalesced to bring forth this very powerful track. Shalog means the whip. And the refrain of the song is hijab be hijab, hijab no hijab. And Tumaj starts just talking about the generational rift, how this generation will not take it anymore. As we all know, the Woman Life Freedom Uprising was very much fought on the front lines by Iranian youth, many of them women. And there has been some discussion about how the generation before them, their parents' generation, they were still subdued by these notions of potential reform from within, but all such conceptions were out the window by the time that this uprising was shaping up. And so it talks about the generational rift. It's a very radical sort of track about this story is over, your power is over. And then Justina kicks in to refer to the hijab, to the veil, to a revolutionary slogan that was repeated in 1979, the women who marched against the mandatory hijab back then said, we want our freedom. And one phrase that was launched against them was, you will have your rusari or you will have a tusari. Either you wear your hijab or you're going to get hit on the head. And so she comes in this track and raps, our share in this life should not be to get hit on the head and finishes that segment by saying, my hair will become a whip that will lash you in your face. These are really radical sort of lyrics as far as the hip hop scene in Iran is concerned. There are two things that really strike me about this song. The first is how hip hop in the West has lost its power. We haven't really had conscious rap for quite a long time. And then hip hop is something that's adopted by young musicians, young rhymers in a country like Iran. And because of the political situation and because of this generational movement, but even before the woman life freedom movement, hip hop was very powerful. It was very conscious, critical of the status quo. It wasn't just party music. So I'm always taken by 
art forms or musical forms that have lost their power in the West. And yet in Iran, it's very powerful, like photojournalism. Photojournalism now in the West is something that's not really thought of or people are having difficulty um, having a living as a photojournalist, but yet in Iran, it's such an important form. The other thing that this song makes me think about is that generational conversation going on between the generations. Just that Justina is referring to a slogan that was used against the women who marched on around, I think it was International Women's Day, 1979. Mm -hmm. These mass women protests, Hengabe Golestan documented these protests and her photographs are in our anthology. They were told either a headscarf or a smack on the head. And then now, you have fast forward 44 years later, or several generations later, you have a young woman saying, no, we don't have to be smacked on the head. And I find that always interesting. It's not just the moment that's going on, but it is also a dialogue with the past. Let's talk about another female rapper from Iran. This is Rudy. And we're going to queue up a track of hers called Zan. Besan, کیف کرد بود و توم پرتاب میشه کوکتل مولوتوف انقدر شبیه این شکل حیون صداتون میشه مونوتون بچه میکشیم بچا بریزن بیرون خیلی بد میشه نمیمونم بیشه نداریم ترس از جماعت بربر شب نمیترس از بیشه مخالف آزادی آینده اندیشه قفل از این که زن فریاد بلنده تیز خشمگین و برنده زن توفنگ زن کالیبر 45 نداریم شوخی با این که هستی so this rap artist Rudy is from West Tehran first for non-Persian speakers, Nahid, can you tell us a little bit about what the song says? It really talks about the violence against women and through the violence, the liberatory nature of the woman freeing herself. And it's a wordplay on Zan and Bezan. Zan being woman and Bezan meaning hit, hit me or hit her. And so she really detangles Be from Zan and liberates the Zan, the woman, in this song from the violence. I find it really interesting that, that there are women rappers in Iran because of the restrictions and the bans against women performing solo in public. And yet rap still appeals to them and that they are recording songs. But what really struck me about Rudy was that she had a interview last year on Radio Ahara and that's available on the internet. And she talked about how music can help you connect with your society by engaging with what you want to change. And this really reminded me again, the power of what rap can really do. And she went on to say that all protest songs act as tools to educate the listener, to promote an ideology, encourage activism, and galvanize that movement by drawing people together and inspiring them to take action or reflect. 
And then she went on to say that what's going on in the present also have its roots in the past. This movement started as a result of decades of oppression against women in Iran. The ongoing protests mark a watershed moment for Iran and possibly the Middle East as a whole, a woman's revolution that spans class and ethnic divides and hopes to tear down patriarchy manifested in its most violent form. I think it's interesting that a young woman is thinking about these issues and trying to uh, galvanize people to activism, to keep going with their activism through her music. So the next song, Baraye, which means four, by Shirin Hajipur, went viral, regularly blaring from cars and balconies and open windows across Iranian cities and towns. Nahid, you've written an entire article about this song and its impact titled Why is Iran's regime so afraid of this song? You call it the song of a generation and say that it broke that violently imposed wall between the state's enforced reality and people's real lives. You go on to say that it forced into the open what people have known for long but were not supposed to express openly. How did it do that? Yeah, thanks, Danny. Um, you know, famously, authors don't actually get to choose their headlines. So <laughs> just to say, but the regime is afraid of that song, but it's more afraid actually of, as you also just recap, the sentiments arising to form that song. And the way it really forced into the open these sentiments in the song, and I'll talk about that in a minute, is that the song was conceived to be and understood to be an authentic reflection of the de desires and demands of the people because it was threaded together from a Twitter hashtag trend, Baroye, for the sake of or for, where Iranians really flocked to Twitter and sometimes also Instagram to write about what is this movement about? What is it, what is it that they are really fighting for? And some of these were absolutely ordinary things, right? For laughing in the streets, for dancing in the streets, for a kiss, for having viable solutions for the environment and the earth to survive, for Piruz, the endangered cheetah to be able to survive. And unfortunately, since then, Piruz has passed away. For not worrying about your simple daily needs for being able to have a peaceful mind, just having a simple peace in your life to be able to conduct a normal life. And this goes a little bit back to, um, you know, the comment that Malu made about photojournalism and why it's so important. One of the first very iconic images that came out of the Woman Life Freedom Uprising was this image of two women having breakfast in a downtown eatery in the south of Tehran. This was not a fancy place. The image was so ordinary, right? Two women sitting down without their headscarves and having breakfast. And the radical nature, the radical sort of imposition of that photograph is that 
this very ordinary act of sitting down and eating breakfast like you would in your own home is not permitted in Iran. And in fact, the photographer was arrested and was kept in detention for a long time. And this photo became banned. Baraye really expresses that, that Iranians are just making a call for life, as you said in the introduction to the podcast. And, and they're unable to really live this, this ordinary life. And this song broke down the barriers of all the slogans and the propaganda of the state, whereby it has claimed for decades that it is the authority that can ordain what a kind of rightful living is, what a kind of just life is. And meanwhile, we know of all the corruption, financial, political that has been going on during the Islamic Republic. And so this song is really just you know, it does away with tarof, it's a Persian term, pretenses. It just says, look, this is what we want, just being able to live an ordinary life, and this is what you're not giving us. <laughs> So putting that out in the open and having that song be recited and voiced all over Iran in all kinds of protest settings all over the world, being re-sung in many different languages, this song became epic, right? There are now dozens and dozens of versions of it in various constellations and dances, and it very much came to represent this movement. The song was even performed at the White House. It was performed in Argentina by Coldplay. The global reach was amazing. And it won a Grammy, right? It won a Grammy. Yeah, it won a Grammy. Handed by the First Lady, which apparently Shervin Hajipur wasn't so happy about, and he wrote a post about it. He said, let's not make this uh, so political at the highest level. But it won a Grammy for the first time, a uh, song for in the category of social responsibility. The votes were given by ordinary listeners. This was not the Grammy committee. Yeah, the song had a huge social impact. And, and the next song that we're going to have has been called a thunderous, wrathful response. In Yekiam Vase, meaning this one is for by Hitchkas. <laughs> Hitchcock is known as the father of Iranian rap, and he's now based in London, where you are as well. Yes. yes. What exactly is Hitchcock saying by way of response to Hajipur? I think that he's angry that Shervan Hajipur's song is gentle in a way. It's, it's requesting the very simple things that they want, the things that people all over the world do. And Hitchcast is very angry. You know, he's very upset about the state of Iran. Yeah, it starts with a gunshot. It's uh, the gunshot interrupts the speech of the Supreme Leader, which we hear at the beginning. And then he says, and this one is for this injustice that you did to us. And this one's for this death that you caused. And this one is for all the hangings. And this one is for you forcing us to do mandatory service. And this one is for that. 
And and he casts, in fact, in the film, no one knows about Persian cats. He appears in a scene where he says, I'm never going to leave this country because my music is for, what's it, Tehran? It's for here. It's not for anywhere else. And of course, he um, saw himself forced to leave the country after he released A Good Day Will Come after the 2009 Green Uprising. And uh, since then, especially with the beginning of this uprising, looking at Hichkas is a study in radicalization. He is calling for armed revolt to the extent where he's just giving people very exact tactics on the streets and carry out violent acts. He still has a lot of followers and a lot of people who are listening to everything he says. But he's been criticized for sitting in the safety of London and instructing the youth to undertake these acts on the streets of Tehran. Many people have been making parallels between the Green Movement demonstrations of 2009 and the Woman Life Freedom protests. And I'm very curious whether culture and music had such an impact in 2009 in the way that, that culture music is having now in these protests. Yeah, I would say not as much. And I think it goes really to the demands of the uprising. The demands of the uprising in 2009 were really about political reforms. They were still very much from within the system, asking for these structural reforms, a calling for elections to actually count for something like they had for the most part within prescribed parameters up to 2009. And of course, 2009 was the big election that was accused of being rigged. But by the time we get to 2022, when the uh, Xinjiang Azadi uprising happens, it is no longer about reforms. This is, we are done with this and we just want to live. And the kind of system you're imposing on us can never be reformed from within. You have shown us time and again, and this is about life and the you know very sort of intimate connection between life and art, right? The source of creation, the source of creativity and how these two things are linked. And I think that's something that's really brought forth this this tsunami of art that we've seen, music, graphic design, theater, film, photojournalism, like you referred to, a lot of writing and poetry. So I think this is truly, even in comparison to 1979, I think this is unprecedented. The volume of art and creative responses that we've seen to this uprising, again, because of the nature of the uprising itself, is really unprecedented. I interviewed Dr. Pamela Karimi, uh, a noted Iranian art historian, and she said to me that the line between art and activism, the very fine line, and that cultural production was a way of inspiring activism, but it was also activism itself. In a sense, it almost seems that the woman life freedom revolution is a revolution that's formed by culture, by art, by music, mm -hmm. by, by poetry. Mm -hmm. For sure. We talked about Tumaj's Shalog, and if you think back to his track Surah Mush, Rat Hole, about a year before the uprising started, it really was prophetic for what was to come. It was a radical track that, for the very first time, really targeted the regime and said, you all will have to go find yourselves rat holes because your time is over. <laughs> And it was incredible at the time because he was rapping from inside Iran. I really had to go on a search and make sure this, this was for real because of the considerable personal risk he was taking to, to say those words. And so in many ways, yes, art has been produced in the wake of it, but has also very much been leading a lot of the demands and the discourses of the movement. 
Nahid, in a recent essay in the journal Iranian Studies, you underscore what you call the ethno-inclusive nature of the woman life freedom uprising and how its music reflects this. But there are two sides to this, and a track like Tumaj Salehi's Meidun e Jange, meaning it's a battlefield, I think really reflects this. میدونه جنگه اثر رنگی هستی بیا که بدون تو یه خونه لنگه میدونه جنگه بیا که وقت ساختن تو دل دشمن بدون ترسه میدونه جنگه دارا و ندار اثر غم و تبار مثل فشنگ قطار میدونه جنگه تیغه شمشیر عشق شهامت و زین کن و جنس سفر وفا of the Islamic Republic as a foreign occupying government is very present in this track. And that theme of foreign occupation is often associated with the motif of Arab outsiders imposing Islam on Persians. And you've, you, there's no getting around the fact that there's a, in, a potentially anti-Arab and anti-Islamic undercurrent to some of this symbolism. On the other hand, you say that Tumaj openly celebrates the cultural pluralism of the uprising. One of the lyrics in the song is, we are the unity of rivers, we are the sea. And mm -hmm. he mentions Arab, Assyrian, Armenian, Turkoman, Baluchi, Az Azari, Kurd, and Lor, as well as other ethnic groups in Iran. There's a lot here, but if you could talk about both halves uh, both sides of this equation, the sort of the anti-foreign occupation representation, which does have this kind of anti-Arab dimension to it, but also the celebration of pluralism and ethno-inclusivity, as you call it. Yeah, this has been really something interesting to observe, which is a coming to the fore of a solidarity between Iran's ethnicities and minorities in a way that we hadn't seen before, right? It really put the Baluchis on the map. It really put the Kurds on the map. And the political slogans that the Azaris were calling to the Baluchis were calling to the Kurds. Tehran was saying Tehran wouldn't be Tehran without these minorities. So we see this incredible unity come forth for this uprising. And I think that will forever remain one of the major accomplishments, no matter what happens ultimately, right? And yet within these discourses, we've also seen what you refer to as the sort of anti-Arab, anti-Islamic discourse. And it's a little bit difficult to parse these things out. I think the way we can understand this, when we look at the songs and the slogans, we see this ethno-inclusivity where there's the solidarity, but then there's also this sort of recurrent discourse of the Islamic Republic being foreign. And I think Iranians have so many cultural sources to as references. And one of the main ones is the Shahnameh. And so I think these references are really a way for Iranians to find themselves on the same script. Again, Malu referred to how there's so much conversation with the past, just to have a common language to refer to an enemy. All Iranians know the Shahnameh, they know the figure of the Zahak. So in the Shahnameh, he is an Arab king. But at the same time, I think Iranians are able to parse this out as being, okay, this is our cultural referent, but that doesn't mean that we're excluding Arabs in this uprising. That's not to say that there aren't certain segments of the opposition, of protesters, of dissenters, especially, I would say, unfortunately, within the diaspora, where some of the toxic rhetoric about you know, this being an anti-Arab uprising or anti-Islam uprising, 
those exist as well, but I don't think they are by any means central to the discourses happening on the ground in Iran, because the reality on the ground is, and Iranians know this and they see this, it is the Baluch and the Kurds who paid the most blood for this uprising. And people in Tehran saw that, people in Tabriz saw that. It was the minorities who bore the brunt of this uprising. No, but it's not only the different ethnicities. It's women, mm -hmm. it's queer, it's trans. Was there a moment before in political movements or political protests where you had this diversity being celebrated? I really think this is the first and it's leading movements across the world, I think, in its ethos, which is it's an intersectional, feminist, anti-patriarchal movement for solidarity and for liberation. And it's different from previous uprisings in Iran because Iran, like other countries in, in the world, has a history of, if not direct colonialism, certainly imperialism, right? Being right. at the behest of foreign powers. You know, in 1979, the reason women were pushed to the side and they were silenced and the reason all these diversities didn't really come to play such a big role was because this was an anti-imperialist movement. The number one enemy was the empire that needed to be sort of uprooted from Iran, mm -hmm. whereas this one is really different. It's fighting against all kinds of forms of oppression on many grounds, like you mentioned, whether it's on gender and sexuality or religion or ethnicities or patriarchy or whatever. This this is a universally anti-oppression movement, so to speak. Nahid, you also talk about a track released six months, six months before Masa Amini's murder called Kaneva Degi 2, produced by 39 rappers from all of Iran's 31 provinces. It featured nearly all the languages and dialects of Iran. And you note that its beautiful diversity worked as an antidote to the comparatively homogenous Islamic culture and ethos imposed by the state. Even though this song came out a few months before the uprising started, do you want to say anything about that? I was really taken with that song. It was so joyous. The different rappers or the different areas that people were rapping from and just some of the humor of it. I thought this was one of the best rap songs I've seen in such a long time. I wanted more and I wanted more women and I wanted to go to all those different areas of Iran. And I thought it, it's amazing that they did that six months before Woman Life Freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you see how much these young rappers cultural backgrounds means to them and how much they conceive of themselves as being Iranians, right? Part of this nation. And these discourses are important, of course, because since 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, there's been repeated sort of conversation from Western powers and other sort of people with certain interests about a disintegration of Iran. There are all these sort of sectarian conversations about the Kurds as being separate or the Azadis. And as an Iranian who grew up in Iran, I've never had that sense. And I 
am actually part of a minority and I claim Iran as much as anyone. And I think this track really speaks to the pride that Iranians and its minorities take in being both from these regions and whatever the cultural specificities of their regions or minority statuses, as well as belonging to this nation. And Khanavadigi means familial, sort of this is, we're all part of the same big family. And what's interesting in the video is that you see them in their cultural sort of costumes and clothes. And then you see them in how they move around during the day, modern young people anywhere in the world, right? Jeans, t-shirt, whatever they're wearing. And they've made sure in segments of the rap of the, of the track to also bring in traditional Persian singing, which the scales to that kind of unite a lot of the different music from the different regions of Iran. And I think it portended this, a lot of what happened during Woman Life Freedom was there for the eyes to see in the music, in the arts, at least a year before the uprising happened. If we were paying attention to the kinds of spaces that Iranians were creating leading up to the, the Woman Life Freedom Uprising, all these demands and all these claiming of bodily autonomies and all these liberational tactics were there in, in the arts. But also there was an interview that I had with Human Ashkari at Radio Farda. And he mm -hmm. had posed this question to me. He said that there were a series of smaller protests from 2017 onwards before Women Life Freedom. And these smaller protests, whether they were oil workers or teachers or pensioners, the cost of living was high. It was getting tough in Iran. People were protesting. Mm -hmm. Were these smaller protests a practice for a larger one? like the one that we saw in, 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 in 2020, in the autumn of 2022. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think that, I think the Woman Life Freedom Uprising really distinguished itself in that it was not, in fact, about economic demands, right? The uprisings yeah. that we saw in 2017, 2018, again in 2019, they were mostly based in workers' demands, yeah, economic yeah. issues. And the Woman Life Freedom Uprising, as much as economic the economic situation for Iranians has been terrible for the last decade because of the imposed sanctions of the U.S. extreme sanctions and then mismanagement and co corruption by the government. I think Iranians blame both of those equally, right? They're very clear about where they put the blame. And uh, they do believe that if their government opened up to the world, these sanctions wouldn't be imposed on Iran and Iranians could actually live a good economic life. Iran is a wealthy country. Iranians should not be having the kinds of economic misery that they have for a majority of them, right? There's been a huge divide happening over the last decade whereby the rich have been getting richer and the majority have been slipping from middle class into working class and, and greater poverty. And But then what we see in Woman Life Freedom Uprising, it's really, these are social demands. These are demands for living a kind of life where you feel if you're if the state if there was ever a state society bargain that we give you some kind of a, a fairly decent level of social welfare but then you put up with our demands in terms of uh, public comportment and so on that bargain completely crashed over the last few years, right? That social welfare is no longer given. Right. And Iranians are either way fed up with having to, in a modern age where everybody's on social media, everybody can see what's happening around the world. Everybody, Iranian youth are completely plugged in with youth uh, culture and youth life across the globe. They're no longer willing to put up with it. So 
I personally don't, I think this was a different uprising. I think this, sure, any kind of uprising and protests are a sort of practice for what comes after. But I think these were qualitatively really different. One of the writers, one of the contributors to the anthology, Vali Mahluji is a curator and an art historian here in London. And he writes, what is different about the current movement is that it is not from oppositional political mandates, foreign adversaries, or internal power struggles, but from individual citizens' civil acts of human pleasure and delight, dances, songs, kiss-ins, and liberally swaying bodies. The historical battleground has shifted to the level of libidinal forces. It, the essay is really about the body and how the body is dealt with by um, totalitarian regimes. Mm -hmm. The body mm -hmm. is the first line, is, is what suffers. Absolutely. And I've been calling it the counterpublics of joy. And we've been seeing this in the micro videos of dancing that have been all over social media over the last few years. At the end of it, because of the disciplinary nature and enforcement of the Islamic Republic, very much on the bodies of people, especially women, on the bodies of women, this liberation could not come but from within the body, right? And pointing to the libidinal is so apt. And it's if you try to restrict people's most private spaces, most private sort of part of their being, then of course, true liberation can only come from the freeing of that, of that oppression. A friend of mine in Tehran, an older woman that I know, she lives in a high rise and she was saying that downstairs it's all cafes and coffee shops and the authorities have been telling the cafe owners that if a woman comes in without a hijab you cannot serve her and the cafe owners have been saying no that's your job that's not our job and then of course their cafes and coffee shops are closed down Mm -hmm. And we're hearing more and more about more arrests, more women being stopped, harassed. In the lead up to this first year anniversary of Gina Masamini's death and murder, it's not looking good. Mm -hmm. People are waiting for these mass demonstrations, but maybe it's too heavy on the streets. And I said to my friend, I said, are you worried? And she said, the young are in charge and the young are planning something. The young will do something. They'll figure out a way. And then the next thing I saw was the rollerblading through the streets of Tehran, this kind of joyous um, outburst of freedom, movement, young women without hijabs, followed by young men in cars who were filming them, and this sort of great music that was going on. And I thought, yes, the young will find a way. For sure. And yeah, I, I think just because Malu referred to high rises, one of the main centers of activity that we've seen a lot about on social media, at least in terms of these daily acts, has been the Ekbatan residential complex. And I'm sure you have seen the video of the five girls who danced to Selena Gomez and Rima's Calm Down. There was a Calm Down challenge online. I don't know if you all remember this. And everybody was posting dance videos around the world to this song. And these girls in Ekbatan did the same. And several things happened. The state brought them in for forced them to basically issue an apology that they were misled, as it always does. But then there were these graphic images circulated of these women as being the new martyrs uh, in terms of the color coordination of the picture, these kind of 
earthy sort of the colors that are used for the pictures of the martyrs of the Iran-Iraq war, these women were basically framed in that kind of imagery, suggesting that they are the new warriors of Iran. And what they were doing was not taking up arms. They were not fighting battlegrounds, right? They were just dancing and freeing their bodies. It's a very, it's a very free kind of dance. Speaking of dancing and videos, the song Rusarito, meaning your headscarf, has become something of a meta-phenomenon. The song advocates the right of women to choose whether to wear a hijab, but the singer Mehdi Yarahi was arrested after releasing the song. And in solidarity with him, some Iranian women are now posting clips of themselves online dancing to the song. And the dancing in these clips, the sheer joyousness of the music, underscore a theme in your book, Malu, and in your writings, Nahid, which is that the woman life freedom movement is not just about protesting and outrage and resistance to repression. It is all of that. But it's also very much an affirmation of life, of joy. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Nahid, you go first. You sure? Yes. Okay, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this as well. But oh, I have it, but you go first. Okay. The Mehdi Al-Rahi, it's an interesting song because he was somebody who was very much, had received a permit from the ministry about six, seven years ago as the, I think he even got an award for like best pop album or something like that. And then a year after he already had lost his permit for some something that he did that was perceived to be political. And now over the last year, he's really issued these, released these tracks that are, that have been in support of the Women Life Freedom Uprising, Suruda Zendegi, which was very interesting. It actually begins with a melody that is instantly recognizable by most Iranians as being the melody of a revolutionary anthem in honor of Khomeini in 1979, Baharan And then so it starts with that and turns it around to support the Women Life Freedom Uprising. And of course, Take Off Your Headscarf is just a complete blatant and explicit song in support of women taking off their headscarves. And he says, you are the sun, you cannot go down, meaning the irrepressible force of life is within you and that cannot be diminished and let's just basically face this reality and just take it off. I think at some point we will have to have a discussion about religion and all of that because I I do want to stress that even according to the women who are interviewed on the streets of Iran, hijabi women, this is not a movement against Islam or against the headscarf. There have been many women who have been hijabis supporting this uprising and religious, yeah, religious people supporting this uprising. This is really about opposing political authoritarianism and oppression, uh, just to make that side note. But Absolutely. Joy has been central. Expressions of joy and bodily autonomy have been central to a lot of the oppositional acts that have happened 
years before the Women Life Freedom Uprising, but I think they really came to the fore with the Women Life Freedom Uprising. But if we look at the Dayari, the, the woman the, who was known as the blue scarf girl who burned her body for not being able to attend soccer stadiums, that is not joyous, but that is really putting the body at the center of these discourses, right? So the body became very much, and I think because of the discourses of the Islamic Republic, where it tries to contain, it still forbids the showing of instruments on state television, music is still strictly regulated, dance is certainly not permitted on the streets. I think it is because of the imposition of these rules that opposition to that necessarily takes this form. But what's interesting about Mehdi's Yarahi's song is the way that it, I detected in it a Bee Gees uh, riff from <laughs> tragedy. And it made me start thinking about the joyousness of disco. Now, okay, maybe that's not something you're supposed to think about in such a serious political situation. However, it has this really rollicking tune and the images that are used in the video, but it starts with sounds of the protests and it ends with a young woman berating someone who's trying to get at her. So that mm. you hear the women. It's, it's a song about women, but the women are so there physically, they're there in the in in the the what I really liked about the video was that it wasn't just one type of willowy or a few willowy girls dancing. It was women mm. of all ages. And it mm. was and some of it was very athletic dancing. And even there was one clip towards the end that like shocked me that I wasn't even sure what I was looking at. And it was obviously in a cemetery. It was a funeral procession and mm -hmm. people were singing. They weren't dancing, but they were singing and they were going to mm -hmm. someone's grave. And mm -hmm. so it, 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 in this song that has such joy to it, and it is quite, I, I thought, oh, you could really dance to this in any club perhaps. There's still, mm -hmm. it, it's incredibly serious what it's about. And mm -hmm. that another thing that really struck me, particularly about the video, was that the women's faces, you can't really see them. They're blurred. And mm -hmm. again, it reminds me that in a, in, a, in a country that has heavy surveillance like Iran, where cars are being confiscated uh, from people who drive in them without their headscarves, where they're watched at every turn, where some of the protesters last year used their sanitary pads to cover the CCTV hmm. cameras in the, in the Tehran metro, that to do a song like this, to do culture like this, to make art like this, to make music like this is really dangerous. And mm -hmm. that, I don't know, it, it, to be honest, it takes my breath away. Hmm. Powerful. Yeah. Malo, you tell a compelling anecdote in the introduction uh, to your new anthology about a woman who had spent a month in solitary confinement in Tehran's notorious Evin prison. And she was really hesitant to appear in your book. You were trying to get her to contribute to the book. And you did eventually change her mind while respecting her hesitation. This Please. is a artist that I've known for probably nearly a decade that I have immense respect for. And periodically I've tried to work with her and to show her work, but then something happens. And I'm not really allowed to say her name to my friends in Tehran. And she does not refer to me 
in Tehran. Okay, so we watch each other from afar. However, she had come to Europe, and I was able to go and meet her. And she knew about the book. I was gathering the material. And in the beginning, people would say to me, yes, we're interested, but you can't use our names. And I would say that would be fine. And then later on, they would get to know me or they would hear something about me and then I could use their names. But this person, we met and she was interested in being in the book. And then I said, I'm going to show you the book because you have to make an informed decision. Everyone has to make it. Everyone has to make an informed decision about how much risk are they willing? Mm -hmm. How much risk? And it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing to ask your contributors to, to take this risk on. So anyway, I said, you have to see it. And so she saw part of the book and she, she, people are very critical and, oh, this isn't so good. Oh, this isn't, ah, this, if I'm going to be in the book, you have to take this out. I can't be in a book that has this image in it. And I said, I can't ask the artist to take that image out. I, I'm unable to do that. As an editor, especially for the anthologies that I do, it, it's a process of negotiation, but my books are a platform for the people mm -hmm. who want to express their ideas and their artwork and their photography and their innermost thoughts. And I'm not a great one at censoring anybody. But I still said, even though this person said, oh, no, I'm not going to, this, no, this isn't good. I said, you have to see the rest of the book because you can't just judge the book by the first things that you've seen. So I went through the book and I showed her the book. And in the end, she said to me, I have to be in this book because there were images and there were ideas and there were pictures that moved her. And because Iranian women, I've found, no matter how old they are, how young they are, the ones that I know, they stand together. And that's what makes the woman life freedom uprising, or as they tell me, a revolution here, so powerful, is that women do stand together. And women who are in the same families, some who wear the hijab, some who refuse to wear the hijab, they also stand together because other contributors write about walking through the streets of Tehran or, or other places and that women who are wearing the hijab tell them to be careful and to go carefully in their lives because they mm -hmm. worry about them. So it's not anti-Islamic. It's not any of that. It really is about personal choice and about, as Nahid, you said, about if, if you have this intrusion, the state intrusion on your most private part of your life, mm -hmm. in the end, you will rebel. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think of them there. Malu, Nahid, thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you, Danny. This has been The Lead, a podcast from New Lines magazine. You can find Nahid on Twitter at Nahid8 and Malu at Halasa Malu. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Danny Postel. Thank you all for joining us.